Look with me here, 1 Corinthians 12. It's going to be on the screen if you don't have your Bible. Don't worry about it. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, and then I'm going to jump to the end, verse 21. The whole section is incredible. It's worth looking at. But let's look at this. Look at this. For we were all baptized. Let me pause there. This whole series is about what Christians do. What that means is if you are not a Christian, it doesn't matter how hard you do these things, they're not going to work. For any of these things to take in your life and to grow your faith, you actually need the first step, which is to be baptized into Christ Jesus and become part of the Jesus people filled with Jesus's spirit, empowered by Jesus to do the things Christians do. So I just want to say that at the front end. If you haven't given your life to Jesus in baptism, I want to talk to you about that. All right. That's a side note. I could preach a whole sermon on that. In fact, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to preach that sermon. All right, here we go. We were all baptized by one spirit. Why? So as to form one body. You see that? Why were you baptized? So that the spirit would form in you one body right here. In fact, God has placed the parts of the body, you, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. So, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Parents, tell me if you've ever heard this before, this phrase, I can do it by myself. Any of you ever heard that before? Yeah, maybe you have. Uh, I think about like my kids uh, when they were learning to walk and more when they were toddler age and we took the, um, the thing down from the stairs, blocking the stairs and they would look at you and say, we're going up the stairs. And you would come running at them and they would say, I could do it by myself. And you're like, no, you can't. No, you can't. Um, my son, Deacon, uh, sometimes when we come up here to school, I drop him off at the day school and we'll, we'll park in the parking lot. And sometimes I'll let him get in my lap and drive around the back of the church. There's not many other people here. And he'll drive around the church and gets out of the driver's seat to go into school. He loves it. Okay. And uh, sometimes when he's driving the steering wheel, I'll reach up to take the steering wheel on the kind of adjust course and he'll slap my hand. And he'll say, I can do this by myself. And he doesn't even know I'm pushing the pedals. Me, right? Like I'm doing that. He can't do it by himself. He actually needs me for this. Where does that impulse come from, you think, to declare our independence? Where do you think that comes from? Even from a young age. Hey, I can do this by myself. Well, I think there's two ways to answer that question. There's a historical way And then there's a biblical way. And I want to show you both of them. And I think they actually inform each other. Let's start with the historical way. You and I live after one of the most important and significant uh, periods of human history that has ever taken place. And you'll remember this from your history books. That period's called the Enlightenment. Anybody remember that from back in high school? The Enlightenment is strongest, let's say, in the 18th century, so the 1700s, but it certainly stretches beyond those boundaries. Can anybody think of a country that was founded in that time period? Okay, some of you don't remember. 1776 is when America started. Okay, so right in the middle of the Enlightenment. And so the principles of that time period are baked into the fabric of this country. Okay, it's in the air you breathe here. What's the Enlightenment about? Well, Immanuel Kant wrote an essay during the Enlightenment, and this is, it was called this, an answer to the question, what is Enlightenment? Listen to what he said. Enlightenment is man's release from his inability to make use of his understanding 
without direction from another. Okay, so basically what he's saying, the problem with humanity for the last hundreds of years is that before anybody made a decision, they would talk to other people about it. Before you did something, you would go and get wise counsel. You would make your decisions in a group. And he says, that's the problem with us because you actually have everything you need right here. You don't need anybody else to make your decisions. So he goes on, he says this, have courage to use your own reason. That is the motto of the enlightenment. Okay. And so we don't even realize that that principle, the principles of that time period are all around us through the air that we breathe. Hey, you don't need anybody else. You can do this on your own. That's historically. Biblically, where does that come from? Well, it goes back way past the Enlightenment. If you go to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, the earliest story in the scripture is a story of two characters. Anybody remember what are their names? Adam and Eve, the first humans. And God puts them in the garden. And in the Garden of Eden, they are in perfect union with each other and most importantly, in perfect union with God. And what that means is they are never alone. They're never by themselves. Right? They're not doing life on their own. They're in union with God. But then the devil deceives them and they make a decision that they would be better off on their own. Better off choosing their own way. And sin enters the world through this. One commentator said it like this, and this has just been a devastatingly penetrating insight to me. He says this, sin, the earliest sin, is autonomy. In fact, that word autonomy comes from two words, auto, self, and nomos, law, self-law. So think about this with me. The oldest religion in the world is the worship of God, where law is external to me, and I am under his law and authority. But the second oldest religion in the world, nearly as old as the first, is the worship of self, where I am a law in and of myself, and I don't need anybody else. I mean, think about that. It is nearly as old as time, the belief that, hey, I can do this on my own. Right. Church is not immune to this. Church isn't immune to this. Did you know that in 2020, during the pandemic, one in five Christians, one in five Christians stopped going to church, both online and in person, altogether and never went back. One in five. 20% of Christians just disappeared from the church. As I think about that, it makes me really grateful for the blessings of God in this place, that we are growing here. Our church plant, Oikos, is growing over that same time period. God has just been abundantly gracious on us, and I'm so thankful for that. But think about it, behind that belief that you can just leave the church and there are no consequences is the implicit or explicit fundamental belief that, hey, I'm actually good on my own. I'm good. The New York Times wrote an article about this. They profiled this woman named Karen Johnson. Listen to Karen's story. Karen Johnson went to a Lutheran church so regularly as a child that she won the perfect attendance award. As an adult, she taught Sunday school. But these days, Mrs. Johnson, a 67-year-old, no longer goes to church. She still identifies as an evangelical Christian, but she doesn't believe going to church is necessary to commune with God. Quote, she said, I have my own little thing with the Lord. 
Mrs. Johnson's thing includes frequent prayer, she said, as well as podcasts and YouTube channels that discuss politics. Okay, now that'll preach. Now think about this. She's got this fundamental belief system that she has divorced from the community that upholds it. And now she is looking still for another group of people that will uphold those belief systems. Do you see why people place inappropriate hopes on politicians, right? Place their lives there. Okay, it's happening to her. A part of it is a divorce from the church. Okay, I've got my own little thing with the Lord. The problem is this independent streak in us is not working. It turns out it's not very good for us. Uh, Meta Gallup, they did a poll and they found that 24% of people worldwide identify as lonely. 24% say they're lonely. In America, the, the U.S. Surgeon General said the number is more like 50% in America. 50% of people say they're lonely. 50%. The U.S. Surgeon General, he said this, given the profound consequences, this isn't scripture, U.S. Surgeon General, I don't even know if he's a believer. Given the profound consequences of loneliness and isolation, we have an opportunity, we have an obligation to make the same investments in addressing social connection that we have made in addressing tobacco use, obesity, and the addiction crisis. He says, you think the opioid epidemic is bad? Look at the loneliness epidemic. It is much, much worse. And its consequences are worse. Now, before you men check out, I know what it's like to be a man. You're like, ha, 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 I don't need anybody. I'm all good on my own. Men, listen to me, especially you men who are getting older. It's very clear that many men, as they age, become more and more isolated, okay, increasingly isolated. One study found that in the last week, only one in five men have received encouragement from somebody else, from a friend. Only one in five men. Women are more than twice as likely in the last week to have received encouragement from somebody else, a friend in their life, than men. Only one in five have gotten encouragement from somebody else in the last week. What that means, hear me, 80% of men, 80% of men are walking around socially isolated lonely and without anybody encouraging them. And I'd, I'd turn around and I'd say, and most of the problems in our world are due to those men, right? Most of the problems in our world are due to those men who are isolated and nobody is encouraging them. Guys, this is a condition. It's called becoming a lone wolf, the lone wolf syndrome. You're gonna trend as you age men towards loneliness and it is actually very bad for you. Richard Reeves wrote a book called uh, Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling. And he says the number one reason is friendship deficiency. Men. Minister I like, he said this last quote here. He said, self-reliance is a bad religion. He calls it, listen to this, the nefarious cult of me. The cult of me. He said, there's a growing horde of followers Declaring our independence and self-sufficiency is way more fun than owning our limits, needing rescue, and entrusting our weaknesses to praying friends. He says, it is the devil's plan to keep us isolated, pretending, and eventually to send us to that lonely island of despair. Whew. 
All right, well, see y'all next week. <laughs> okay, that's the bad news. We start with the bad news. You're like, Eric, give me some good news. All right, what's the good news? Okay, the good news is that God knows what you most need. God knows about this crisis of despair, right? He knows about the human heart and what we need. And so he gives to us the answer to our problem. And the answer is community. But before we talk about the right community, let me just say, you don't just need any community. You need the right one. Look with me at this. This is Psalms 1. Okay, this is how the Psalms start out. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. So this, this short verse here tells us two things. One, it's a commentary on how sin works. Sin works and you just, you kind of start walking with it. You're just feeling it out. And before you know it, you're standing in it. And then all of a sudden you're sitting there and you're stuck. Okay, that's how sin works. Some of you have experienced that in your life. But look at how that process happens through the wrong people in your life. The wrong people can start that process in your life to get you stuck and trapped in sin. This is why parents, I know what you're praying for, for your kids more than you're praying for probably anything else. What is it? That they'll meet the right people. The right people, that's what you're praying for. You don't just need any community. Listen, Jesus didn't come to earth and start the PTA. He didn't come to earth and start a little league baseball team or a rotary club, a nonprofit. What did he come to the earth and start? A church. Jesus comes to earth and leaves and leaves behind one thing, the church, filled by a spirit. Look what Jesus says. I will build my church. That's what I'll build. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So it's not just that you need any community Christian. Which community do you need? His the one he's building, the one he's empowering, the one he's dwelling within, you need the church. You probably knew I was gonna say that, we're at church. If you were gonna ask me what Christians do, I would tell you, Christians join the church and they participate and are involved in the life of the church. I went to see a brother not long ago, he was in the hospital and he went to the hospital, it was an emergency, it was kind of touch and go for a little while while he was there. I got there a few hours later and he finally got into a room. So I come there and I pray with him and his wife. And before I go, I say, hey, are you, are you ready for me to share this with the church? Or do you still want to be alone for a little while? Maybe you're not ready. He told me a story. I won't forget this. He said, Eric, a couple of years ago, I got sick. And uh, at the time we just kept it a secret and we didn't tell anybody. You know what I learned then? He said, I learned I need the church. So I am not ready to see anybody but why don't you go ahead and tell everybody and tell them to come see me anyways? So I'm not ready to see them, but why don't you go ahead and send them anyways? And by that time, the next day in about 24 hours, his whole Sunday school class basically had gone to visit him in the hospital. He's doing so much better now. I think that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians. Let's look at that, Let's look at that verse again. Look at this. We were all baptized by one spirit. Why? So as to form one body. In fact... God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And so the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Oh, look at what he's saying. He's saying the reason that God called you to himself is not only that you might have eternal life with him, but because he wants to do something on earth. He wants to build this community 
that will tend to that deep need that you have not to be alone and that will build you up and support you. And he uses that image of a body, which is one of the most beautiful images in scripture. And he says, he says it's like an ear or an eye. Like if one of those were just floating out in the world, separate and detached from the rest of the body, one, it would be terrifying, and two, they would be useless. I mean, just think about it, an ear just floating through the world. In chapel service, I said an ear walking, but an ear, it can't walk on its own. They just imagine an ear floating through the world. It doesn't matter what that ear hears if it's not connected to all the internals, the eardrum going to your brain. You have no way of processing what you're hearing unless you are connected to the rest of the body. Or it's like a hand. If you were to sever a hand from the rest of the body, that hand couldn't even open and close if it's not connected to the tendons and stuff running up your arm, into your elbow, up into your shoulder. And he says, hey, that's actually the way he designed you, was that you, in order to accomplish your purpose that he's made you for, you cannot do it apart from others. You can't do it. Let me talk to young people for a second. I mean, this is the reason why finishing high school, going off to college, going to get in a job is the most dangerous moment in your life, right? Because for the first time in your life, you're gonna be disconnected from the body of Christ that knows you and raised you for the first time in your life. And it is so tempting to stay disconnected and to think, that's right, I'm an adult now. I can do it by myself. And the problem is, detached from the body, you will not accomplish what God has set out for you to accomplish. You just can't do it. Okay, but that's like me telling Deacon he can't drive the truck by himself and not explaining how the gas pedals work. <laughs> So let me explain how the gas pedals in the church work. What is the church actually doing for me? What's it giving for me? Let me give you six things I think the church does for me. The church knows me. The church knows me. In James, James says, hey, if you want to be healed, the things in your life that are wrong, if you want them healed, somebody else has got to know about it. Like what goes unknown is going to go untreated. Okay, so there's two things that have to happen if you want to be healed in your life of what is ailing you. And the first is you've got to confess that. That's what he says in James 5, 16. Somebody else has to know about what is going on in your life. Kevin Shelby, he's a therapist. He goes to church here and he and I lead a marriage class together, Start Married Life Right. He's got this great thing he says. I'm stealing this from him. He says, the fundamental human desire is this. <clears throat> if you still Sorry, if you really knew me, would you still love me? Did I get it right, Kevin? If you really knew me, would you still love me? That that's our deepest desire. I actually think he's right. What you experience in the body of Christ, if you can actually share with others what is wrong, is what it's like to be loved when you're fully known and you need that to be healed. That brings us to number two. James then goes on to say that the church prays for you. And that you need people praying for you. Uh, he says there's two things you need if you want to be healed. You need to tell somebody, confess, and you need those people praying for you or else it will not get better. Uh, our elders, we have 20 elders. And we have a text thread with 20 guys on it. 
And I love this text thread. It's a joy to just have a window into our shepherd's hearts because every time we hear about one of you who are sick or going through something, a divorce, a struggle, an addiction, going to the hospital, those elders will send a text. Hey, I want you all to know so-and-so's at the hospital. Let's pray for him. And then it's like ding, 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 you know, praying, praying, praying right now. And I'll just be really honest. Some of our elders do not understand group text etiquette. You know, it's like, uh, it's late at night and I'm like, what are you old guys doing up so late? I got to silence my elders so I can go to sleep at night because they're praying for you guys. Tell you what, I love it so much that we have shepherds who want to lift you up to the Lord in prayer. I mean, is there anything more beautiful than that? And you need that. You need men of God and women of God who are lifting you up if you want to be better. That's what the church does for us. That's number two. Number three, the church supports me. Listen to this, what Paul says. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, if one part suffers in the church, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. A couple weeks ago, there's there's a sweet, sweet, sweet woman here at Highland. She was a widow. She was widowed a few years ago, and she fell and she broke her leg. You know who took her to the hospital? Women from this church. You know who stayed with her in the emergency room till she was better? Women from this church. You know who took her home that night and stayed with her overnight? Women from this church. You don't know when you're going to need the support of the church, but you're going to be glad you have it when you do. That's what the church does. It supports us in our time of need. Okay, let's keep going. Number four, the church mobilizes me. We read from Ephesians 4 earlier, a little bit earlier in Ephesians 4, it says you should live a life worthy of the Lord. You want your life to accomplish things for Jesus Christ. But then it says the way that you learn that, what your life is called to, a life worthy of the Lord for you is that you bear with one another in love in the one body. What's he saying? You actually can't learn your purpose apart from the body he's made. That the church mobilizes me and it calls me to do what the Lord wants me to do. And then lastly, five and six, the church directs me. That is, the church teaches me. And the church corrects me, number six, or admonishes me. This comes from what we have in Colossians 3.16. Let the message of Christ dwell in you. It's you plural, dwell in y'all. Let the message of Christ dwell in y'all. Um as you teach and admonish one another. So what that means is the the community of Christ are the people that teach me God's word, his desire for me generally, and then specifically apply that word to my life so that when I'm out of bounds of what God's word wants for me, it corrects me, it admonishes me and gets me back in my lane. So it's not just that I need to be taught and instructed, I need to be admonished or corrected by what's critical to admonish somebody. You gotta actually know them. You gotta know them. And this brings me to a a point I wanna make about the difference between um, online and real life. My boys love video games. We have a rule in our house, real life is better. So if a neighbor shows up at the door and knocks on the door, you're going outside because real life's better. And I think that's true. When we think about all the things the church does for us, this impulse kind of rises up in us and we're like, is there an Amazon for that? Where I can just order all that to the house and just get it delivered? And um, I wish there was. I wish there was. Let me talk to you about the difference between 
online spirituality and real life spirituality. What you can get online versus what you can get here, okay? Let's talk about first, easy versus effort. Easy versus effort. You don't have to think very hard, but you remember back to your basketball coach or your volleyball coach or your school teacher from high school who would tell you things like, hey, if it's easy, it's not worth it. Remember that? Maybe your mom and dad said that to you. And I think that's true of church. I can't tell you how many times in the New Testament when it talks about what Christians do, it says, make every effort. Make every effort. Coming to church is hard. If you got kids, it's really hard to get them all out of the door in the morning. Don't complain to me. Lindsay does it all by herself every Sunday morning. She gets all three kids here, okay? Um, let me tell you another story about a sweet woman here been battling serious illness for a long time. She plans her medications such, wakes up two hours earlier on Sunday morning than any other day of the week so that she can take her meds in time to feel well enough to come to church. Okay, why? Because what takes effort is generally the only stuff that's worth it, right? Easy versus effort, online versus real life. Well, let me talk to you about this, anonymous versus personal. If sin comes from autonomy, doing it on my own, and I need to be known and loved probably more than I need anything else, then I am at great risk if my whole spiritual life exists in podcasts and I'm not known. That brings me to number two, content versus connection. Content's a big part of your spiritual life. Learning is a big part of your spiritual life. How many of you listen to podcasts or learn things about Jesus online? Listen to your favorite preacher, somebody else, somewhere probably, right? I do it too. My favorite preacher's not me, okay? Um, and what that speaks to is that like, hey, a big part of the spiritual life is absorbing content, but it is not the main thing. The main thing that grows you, you wanna know what it is? Connection, not content, connection. That brings me to the last thing. Let's throw this up there. Self versus wisdom. Okay, when you are pers personally curating, hear this, when you are personally curating your whole spiritual life, your spiritual life is based on the lie that you can do it by yourself, right? You actually need the wisdom of others to grow you spiritually. That's how God made you. So let me end with these two challenges. I know being a part of community is harder for some than others, just based on personalities, the way that God made us. I know that's the case, okay? So let me just give you these two challenges. And I want you to pray over these and think about how by God's grace and his strength and effort, you might grow in these areas as you strive to join and be part of the body of Christ. Number one, invite your church into your community. Invite your church into your community. Here's what I mean. When you come to church, don't slip in and slip out actually say a word to another human being when you're here. Talk to them. Ask how somebody's doing. Ask how their kids are doing. Uh, ask what's going on in their life. Sometimes they might ask you how you're doing. Okay, like invite people into your life. Take them to lunch. Bring them over to your house. It's harder for some than others, but it is so easy to come to church and stay on the edges. Let me just challenge you to invite your church into your community. And then number two, invite your community into your church. Okay, number one for a lot of us is easier than for number two, but you probably have a softball team, uh, a work uh, group that you hang out with, 
and go out with sometimes. You probably have the PTA that you're part of. Like you actually have these other communities and groups. The problem is they're not supercharged with the power of Jesus Christ. Okay, like they're good things, but if you were to invite those people you already have into your life into the fellowship of God's people, I guarantee you it would grow and deepen the nature of your relationship. Okay, so let me leave you with those two challenges and just say, if you were to ask me, what Christians do, I would tell you they join and are part of the body of Christ and that grows you. It grows you. Let me pray over you. God, I'm so thankful for the body of Christ you have blessed us with here. What a great gift. I'm thankful that we get to serve alongside one another like at night to shine. I'm thankful that we get to learn and study like we have the last few minutes. I'm thankful for it, that we get to worship together and build each other and up, up, Lord. But I'm most thankful that in the hallways of this place, that over coffee that this group shares together in homes and small groups, that they speak the truth to one another in love. That's what we need. Help us to grow in that, Lord, for your sake and glory. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.